This episode of Superman of the Bronze Age is dedicated to the memory of Phyllis Thaxter, who played Martha Kent in Superman the Movie. She passed away at the age of 92. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. And welcome to another thrilling episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Chuckling Charlie Niemeyer, and today we are going to finish up birthday month with a look at Superman number 293. But first, I wanted to mention that this episode is sponsored by InStockTrades.com, a mainstay in the collected edition market. InStockTrades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship all at great discounted prices. Most orders ship within 48 hours and orders over 50, 50 cents, orders over $50 ship for free. You can find them on the web at instocktrades.com. Also, they're running a sale on DC Trades right now. I haven't looked through the whole list because there's several pages, but what stood out to me is it, it appears that just about all of the DC Archive editions are running at about 65% off, meaning that most are now less than 20 bucks. so make sure you check that out. Next up, we have your answers to last episode's super question of who is your favorite Superman writer? And before I get to those, I just thought I'd mention that my personal favorite is John Byrne. Uh, especially when he's also the artist, but pretty much all the stuff he did with the pre-crisis reboot. From Man of Steel number 1 till when he left on Super at Superman 22. You know that feeling of awe and excitement you get during the part of Superman the movie from the shirt rip to after he saved Air Force 1? Well... I still get that to this day when I read John Byrne's issues. I don't know what it is. It just happens. Especially when he's also drawing it. Not knocking Jerry Ordway or any guest artist that happened along, but he seems to put more into it when he's also going to draw it. And this isn't a knock to any writers before or after, uh, like Roger Stern or Dan Jurgens or Elliot S. Magan or Kerry Bates or Marv Wolfman or anyone else. They're all great writers. It's just Byrne did some, uh, just did some real good stuff back then. And unfortunately, as an example of not being able to go back, the stuff he's done more recently, like Generations, which was good, um, but the stuff he's done more recently as far as writing Superman well his art too but writing Superman just hasn't done the same thing for me there's still good stories and I love reading Superman stories but there's it's just you're, when you when I read a Superman story I look for a bit of awe and it's just a feeling I get and I'm still looking for that I haven't felt that since I read the since I was reading the John Byrne stuff but I posted the f uh, question on both the fan page and the group page on Facebook, and here are the answers you guys gave. 
over on the group page. I think this is the group page. No, this is the fan page. Or is this the group page? You know, I can't tell. Uh, this is the like. So, fan page. This is the fan page. Uh, the responses I got. PQ River responded that he liked Kirby, even though he only did a handful of Jimmy Olsen issues, but he did a lot for the mythos, which is a good point. He introduced a lot of stuff that would later be brought in post-crisis, as well as... I believe he's the creator of Morgan Edge and possibly GBS, so that was a big change for the, you know, for the Superman titles. Uh, Danny McKinney also writes that his super favorite Superman writer is George Perez. And Danny, I'd be interested to see if you prefer his run right after Exile ended, or if you mean his New 52 run. Um, that's the only responses I got on the fan page. The group page... I got several responses. Uh, Jeffrey Taylor, co-host of several shows and was on the last two episodes of this show, um, he wrote, and I'm guessing this is in order, Jurgens, Stern, and Ordway. That's either in order or he likes all three of them at the same time, which makes sense because he likes the From Crisis to Crisis era, and they, of course, were the biggest contributors to the early part of that era. Billy Hogan writes, Elliot S. Magan and Alan Moore. Okay. Uh, let's see. Lee Busby writes Brian Q. Miller presently, and of course he's writing the super, the super, yeah, the Smallville tie-in comic. It really isn't a tie-in comic. It's season eleven, so that's cool. Greg Barr writes Ordway Stern and Byrne, so kind of looking at an earlier era uh, or earlier part of the Crisis to Crisis era. Uh, let's see. Alan Leach Jr. writes Ordway and Jurgens. So that's cool. Uh, man, Ordway seems to be pretty popular amongst everybody here. And last but not least, we have Scott Howdy Gardner. And he says his favorite is Stern. Okay. And yes, Stern's good. Uh, he did a lot of good stuff. I, I don't know. I just like the burn stuff better. Sorry. Um... So I want to thank you, everyone, for responding. And now for the next super question. What is your favorite era of Superman? Now, just because this show is about the Bronze Age doesn't mean that you have to say Bronze Age. I'm perfectly okay if you prefer New 52 or Golden Age or whatever. Um, but please uh, post your answer on either the Facebook fan page or the group page. Or if you are not able to find those... And they're on Facebook. Just look for Superman in the Bronze Age. But if you can't find those or you're not on Facebook, just shoot me an email at superbronze1970 at gmail.com and I will read the answers on the air. Unless you ask me not to. Superman in the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. In a world where planets die... I have come to the conclusion, Krypton is doomed! Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's 
just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? Well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting the thrilling adventures of Superman. A podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. You are cordially invited to attend the podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. All right, and our issue for this episode is Superman number 293 with a cover date of 1975 and an on sale date of August 21st, 1975. Uh, it has a cover by Bob Oxner, uh, depicting Superman keeping everyone in Metropolis. By everyone, there's like ten people or less, uh, keeping them away from a fire hydrant currently shooting out water, and they want the water, but he won't let them. This, I believe, I've seen this on the that Super Dickery site. Um, fortunately, there's a reason for this, but yeah, I can see how it can be viewed that way. Uh, it's actually a pretty good cover. I like the art. Bob Oxner is a very good artist in his own right. His Lois is very pretty for a pencil draw- for a line drawing, and of course Superman looks super. I guess um, the title of this story is "The Miracle of Thirsty Thursday," written by Elliot S. Magan, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Bob Oxner, and of course edited by the awesome Julie Schwartz. We start off with a splash page of Superman fighting what is described as a creature, but actually just looks like a guy wearing a torn lab coat. We've also got a narration from a young woman named Joanne Jamie. She's a historian from 15 centuries in our future, where instead of just recording history, historians actually go back in time to relive history. However, their records are incomplete of a day when a city in the midst of water was parched with thirst. A day that, in the future, is referred to as the Miracle of Thirsty Thursday. Our story begins on August 20th, 3475, as it's, yeah, 
Our story begins on August 20th, 3475, as historian on call, Joanne Jamie, tries to get the director of the Time Continuum Control in Metropolis to send her back 1,500 years to verify one of the, one of the few true miracles of history. But he believes she just wants to go back to meet Superman. And who wouldn't, really? See, they've been sending a historian back every five years for centuries, and in a, in a city of eight million people, each one of them has been able to quote-unquote run into Superman somehow. And while he doesn't believe her pleas that it won't happen since Superman has nothing to do with Thirsty Thursday, he sends her back anyway. Next, we jump back to August 20th, 1975, where we see our favorite Man of Steel flying into a building on fire. While he monologues via Thought Bubble about how the fire department is ill-equipped to handle fires in such tall buildings, but and that that won't change until it's actually the wealthy that are affected instead of the poor people in tenements, he makes his way through the building using his X-ray vision to find the mother and child who are still trapped inside. He finds the mother first, but is able to spot the child also in need of help. After passing off the mom to a firefighter at a nearby window, he rushes back inside and is able to pick up little Debbie. That's her name. It's not the can, not the cake. Uh, just as the floor under her collapses. Outside, the mom is freaking out until Superman finally arrives with the little girl. However, the on-site doctor can't detect a heartbeat. But Superman can detect a slight nerve activity in her chest cavity, so he gives her a super heart massage, which succeeds in reviving the girl and causing the eyes of all onlookers to fill with tears of wonder and amazement. And as Superman flies off and Lois completes her report for WGBS, Morgan Edge is yelling at producer Josh Coyle, because the fire is the biggest story of the day, but the film won't be ready in time for the 6 o'clock news, which will be going on the air in a little over an hour. He has Coyle send out a flying newsroom, so... Nah. So he has Coyle send out the flying newsroom so Lois can do a live report as Justice Clark starts walking out of a storeroom after changing back from being Superman. This sets Edge off again, prompting Clark to think that he should probably start changing in his office. Which would be a good idea. Meanwhile, at Star Labs, Dr. Larry Ishmael is working on a food substitute when he accidentally drops the entire vial, causing the liquid to turn to gas on contact with the air. Not knowing what it will be or how far it will spread, Dr. Ishmael takes an antidote, but it ends up doing something to make him feel, and I quote, Odd. Back at WGBS, Steve Lombard is introducing Clark to a young historian named Joanne Jamie. Where have I heard that name before? During the introductions, Steve pretends to drop his keys so that he can tie Clark's shoes together and make him look like an idiot, or a fool, in front of the pretty girl. But Joanne Jamie, I swear that name sounds familiar, sees this, and with a bit of matter transmutation from her earring, which is of course a simple matter of yeah. Uh, Steve finds himself wearing Clark's shoes and tripping over himself as Joanne Jamie, I know that name, leaves their company. Neither one of them can contemplate what just happened because soon both men are behind the desk starting the 6 o'clock news. While back at Star Labs, Dr. Wilson Farr checks in on Dr. Ishmael, who lunges at him like some kind of savage. Think Bruce Banner 
thinking he's the Hulk, but he's not really the Hulk. Kind of, yeah. Switching scenes again, Clark switches the newscast over to Lois, who is still covering the fire. But as the firefighters are about to put out the last traces of the fire, they suddenly throw down their hoses and run off. While Clark tries to come up with a way to get out of the studio so he can change the Superman and put out the last bits of the fire, Dr. Farr calls Inspector Henderson to tell him about Dr. Ishmael. A lot of doctors. After the call, weird things start happening all over the city. Inspector Henderson suddenly finds himself disgusted by the glass of water he's about to drink. Joanne Jamie, there's that name again, has a hard time finding a hotel room on a Wednesday evening and finds out that it's actually because they're all full of future historians there to record Thirsty Thursday. Lois also finds herself hating water, and the savage Dr. Ishmael is now running free in the city. Since Lois is still covering the fire, Clark excuses himself to clean his glasses. Soon, Lois reports of Superman's arrival on the scene. While he notices that the firefighters seem to have become afraid of the water, Superman starts flying in circles above the fire, creating a super-speed air pool that draws the fire and the smoke up, up, and away. As he lands for an interview from Lois, Dr. Ishmael dives headfirst into the Man of Steel. As they are asshole, Superman recognizes the Doctor, but soon a crowd of historians starts to gather around the fight, for this is apparently the beginning of the event. So Superman hogties the Doctor and uses his super senses to check Star Labs and finds that the serum he dropped was, has spread throughout the city, giving everyone a pathological fear of water and that he took the wrong antidote and it's made him crazy. Also, the only way to be cured is to either be kept hyperactive or completely rested for 24 hours. So, thinking quickly, Superman uses his heat vision to puncture some gas canisters conveniently located in a storeroom beneath the city. These canisters are full of sleeping gas and quickly causes everyone in Metropolis to fall asleep. Of course, neither Superman nor Dr. Ishmael are affected, so Superman engages him in a battle to keep him active for the next 24 hours. And of course they do, fighting all night and then all all the next day until at about 6 p.m. on August 21st, when everyone suddenly wakes up and Dr. Ishmael returns to normal. Superman decides that he'll let Dr. Farr and Dr. Ishmael know what happened, but no one else will ever know. Back in the year 3475, or or later in 34, it depends on how you look at it, Joanne Jamie, see, I knew that name was familiar, is giving her report. And while she wasn't able to discover what really happened on August 21st, 1975, she did get to witness the greatest miracle of that or any era, Superman. All right. Notes on this issue, page one. Like I mentioned, Dr. Ishmael is referred to here as a creature, but it just looks like a guy with messed up hair who's wearing one of Bruce Banner's torn up lab coats from after he's turned to Hulk. I don't know if he was supposed to be more Hulk-like and they changed it or what happened, but I'm sorry, this ain't no mysterious creature. That's all I'm going to say. Page two. It's normal for comics at this time to show a current well-known landmark that somehow survives well into the future so that the reader will still be able to identify the city 
the story takes place in almost on site. In this case, it's the WGBS building, which is still around 1,500 years into the future. But there's new structures all around it with a sign proclaiming it to be a historic site, which I would imagine, while they don't actually come out and say it, I would imagine since Superman worked there as Clark Kent, and they know by this time that Clark Kent was Superman, that, you know, they kept it around. Pages 3 through 5, I love this scene. This is a very Superman scene, and him bringing Debbie back from the brink of death was really cool. Especially with the crowd reaction. A little corny? Yes, but still cool. And part of me wished he'd stayed and helped out with the fire, though. Especially since he'd gone on about the fire department not being equipped to handle it. That, in fact, was the only part that I didn't like about the scene. It was a little preachy. I don't know if this was just something Magan was feeling at the time, but... Yeah... It just seemed weird that he'd go on about how the fire department needs all this help, and then once he saves the girl, he just leaves. Especially with, oh, I don't know, like, well over an hour before he needed to be back to do GBS for the newscast, so, I mean, he could have done something. But then again, he's letting them do their jobs, so depends on how you want to look at it. In panel 3 of page 6, we see the shadow of Superman switching to Clark. Uh, behind the storeroom door, which reminded me of the old Fleischer cartoons. But I thought we'd already seen Clark changing in his office before, so that comment about maybe he needs to start changing in there seemed a little weird. And I'm not just... and That's in issues we haven't covered yet, but we have... Issues that have been covered on this show have depicted that, so... I don't know. Uh, page 7. Well, I'm just going page by page, literally, by on this. Uh, but page 7... The first line of dialogue on this page is, and I'm quoting, Let's see now, if I put just a drop of this volatile serum in the puppy's water, and, well, that's enough of the quote, but the knowledge that it's volatile would tell me that it should be handled with a lot more care than Dr. Ishmael is giving it right here. Uh, maybe even left on the counter next to the water bowl so that some Butterfinger Doctor wouldn't accidentally drop it. And when he drops it, he doesn't seem that concerned about dropping it either. He's like, uh-oh. No idea what's going to happen now. Maybe I should... Let me take this antidote. Which is weird, because if he doesn't know what it's going to do, how does he know that to take an antidote? Don't you have to know what, what the stuff's going to do to you before you have an antidote to counteract it? I don't know. Uh, page 8... I find it kind of funny that after all of her assurances earlier, or later, since she's from the future, timey-wimey stuff, the first time we see Joanne Jamie in 1975, she's meeting Clark, knowing full well that he's Superman. I also like that she saved Clark here, but I'm kind of surprised that Clark and Steve just kind of let her walk off after their shoes have been switched. I mean, that doesn't just happen. Uh, page 10. Okay, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Okay, so for more than an hour after Superman left the scene, the firefighters are still fighting the fire, and he didn't help. Now, he, it doesn't show on here that he even offered, so I guess that explanation, or that option I gave earlier doesn't really count. Um, and, and I understand letting the men do their jobs, but after this long, more is going to be damaged than just their pride. 
unless that fire is very well contained, which, considering his thought bubble earlier, I don't know that it is. But I think I just killed the argument I had earlier a few pages back, so yay, score one for me. Oh, boy. Uh, page 11. We get Inspector Henderson. This is not his first appearance in the Bronze Age. I don't think it's his last appearance. Uh, Inspector Henderson, of course, was a character created for the George Reeves show uh, from the 50s and only made a handful of, of appearances pre-crisis. Uh, all of them were during the Bronze Age, though, and so this is one of them. So you just witnessed a little bit of history, folks. Sort of. Um, page 15, it's very convenient to have a storeroom full of sleeping gas under the city. And it's also convenient that all of the drivers aren't crashing into each other in their cars. Um, which, which is ironic, because as I'm recording this just earlier today, I was listening to an episode of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Um, and there he's uh, Michael Bradley the host, was covering a, a story from Action Comics number 31 way back in the uh, 1941, which ironically, I, I also got to cover with John Wilson on Golden Age Superman. In fact, I did the synopsis for the story. And in that story, you have a whole town of people falling asleep. And Clark is running around trying to prevent all these accidents because people fall asleep on the on the street and a car keeps driving because the person's falling asleep driving a car. The car doesn't just stop. So, you know, Clark's got to run around. He actually doesn't change into his costume much of it because everyone's asleep, so it doesn't really matter. So he's running around in his suit, stopping these cars and preventing accidents. And here, Superman intentionally causes everyone to fall asleep and there's no mention of anything with cars. It, it, I guess part of the miracle of Thirsty Thursday is that the sleeping gas made the cars fall asleep too, is my only guess. Um, something that was also mentioned that I don't have in my notes, but gas dispersal is pretty crazy in this issue. Actually, I think I do mention this in my notes further down. But I'm going to mention it right now. Okay. How does a small vial of gas in one office of the Star Laboratory building affect an entire city pretty quickly actually in less than in about an hour but not anywhere outside of the city also how does the sleeping gas stored underground seep up and affect the city almost instantaneously number one and number two Again, gas dispersal, it only stays in the city. Three, how did Superman know that that was just the right amount of sleeping gas so that everyone in the metropolis, from Epic Center right there at the battle to the outer edges of the suburbs, would all wake up in exactly 24 hours? See what I'm getting at? Some things are a little bit of a stretch here. But, um, to keep going, uh, let's see, page 17. I'm not completely sure why Superman feels the need to keep this such a secret. Um, especially from authorities, or authorities. Now, we had a scene of the White House wondering what was going on, so you'd think 
he'd at least tell the president. But you'd think it would be easier just to mention on WGBS what happened. Of course, it could cause Dr. Ishmael his job, but I just don't see what the big deal is about keeping it such a secret. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, that's a lot of people with questions that are going unanswered. Of course, they fortunately forget about it by next issue, or heck, uh, this is the Superman issue. Action Comics comes out at the end of the month, I believe. So, so by the Action Comics issue, you know, no one remembers this, but still. Overall, though, this story is a lot more fun when you aren't analyzing it for a podcast. Um, for example... Uh, like, if Dr. Ishmael didn't know what his serum would do, how did the other doctors figure it out so fast and figure out a cure for it? It's just weird timing. I mean, he was trying to see if it would... It was a nutrient thing for water. So how did they know that it would make everyone afraid of water? That's just weird. Um, Let's see. And... Oh, and of course, why do they call this Thirsty Thursday if it starts at 6 p.m. on Wednesday? Which technically means that there's about six hours of Wednesday left. Now, granted, that's 18 hours. Yeah, 18 hours of Thursday that this takes place on, so I guess there's more of Thursday than Wednesday, but still, I don't know. Um... But anyway, Magan would use some of the scenes from this story in his Superman novel, Miracle Monday. Part of that story actually involves a young historian from the far future wanting to go back to the then-present-day metropolis to study a still-unexplained miracle and ends up meeting Superman as Clark Kent. I think she ends up actually meeting Superman as Superman, too. Um, I've, I've only read that once, and it's been a while since I've read it, but... Yeah... Uh, I th- I want to say there was also a scene about the full hotel, about hotel being full on an off day due to other historians going back to witness the event as well. Um, so yeah, uh, so that was pretty interesting to me. This is like a prelude or a what do you want to look a, like a pilot version, and then he'd refine it because the Miracle Monday story is m- well. I'm gonna say it's much better. But I haven't analyzed it like like I'm analyzing this. So maybe if I go back and analyze it, I'd find more problems with it. But I didn't see too many problems with it when I read it. And I think I will be covering that book since it came out during the Bronze Age. But that's way down the road. Uh, anyway, um, the art in the story is really top-notch. Swan and Oxner had been working together for quite a little while at this point and they were really starting to meld well together. Uh, Which is why it's a shame that their work together is so often overrated. Overrated. Well, I can't type. Which is why it is a shame that their work together is so often underrated. I personally prefer this team to Swanderson. The characters just look more solid and for lack of a better word, kind of streamline. The women are prettier. The guys look tougher, look, I don't know, stronger. Um, yeah, I don't, I just, I think it looks better in my opinion. Um, 
plus Oxner's inks uh, when he inks it he actually adds some muscle and extra definition to Swan Superman not overpoweringly enough you know like it doesn't look like Ed McGinnis Superman or even John Burns post crisis Superman but it definitely buffs him up a little bit it's 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 really cool really good muscle definition I like it um and there it yeah another reason why I probably hold this issue in such high regard um is that it the story occurs well Thirsty Thursday itself is August 21st 1975 I was literally born on the 5th anniversary of Thirsty Thursday which reminds me happy belated Thirsty Thursday everybody Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fans. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Okay, the ads for this issue. The first ad, inside front cover, we have Heroes in Action. Take command of the 17 action men that move. They actually make sounds, and I guess they have some kind of articulation. Let me see. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Silly me. Um, there's 17 of the bravest-looking, best-moving combat heroes in the world that are made of plastic. Set, set them in their rugged remote control stands and push, push, push the action lever. Your heroes in action figures make gunfire noise as you move them into action. Start collecting them all. And for heavy artillery firefights, get these exciting two-man action teams, Mortar Squad, Machine Gun Crew, Ant 
anti-tank team. Wow. Yeah, basically these are guys uh, situated on some kind of a, a fake piece of plastic rock. You pull the lever and they'll make noises or slightly move to indicate that they're shooting kind of in a bouncy kind of way. Remember, it's 1975, so, you know, they were kind of limited on some of that stuff. The next ad, we have a, a, two, a half ad for Slim Jim's smoked beef snacks spicy and the bottom half is um, showing a sample of I don't know a calendar what the heck is this some kind of engraving plates is what it is. Oh, okay. And something about and an ad for engraving plates and to sort of sell engraving, plate, engraving plates. So that's interesting. Uh, the next page we have, naturally, a new belt and wallet course from Tandy. So you can learn how to make your own wallet and belt. Hmm. And with this coupon, if you want to cut out this thing, um, you'll save three bucks. The offer expires on February 29th, 1976, which, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this offer expires on Michael Bailey's date of birth. Exactly. So, happy birthday, Michael. Uh, the bottom half is the comic, is Captain Collector's Comic Library. Hey, kids, did you know that a 1960 Fantastic Four is now worth a hundred bucks? <laughs> a hundred bucks. Imagine what your comics will be worth in a few years. So start your collection today. These are for permanent binders to protect and store your comics. Each one holds 18 comics. You can read them all without removing them from the... I don't know how that would work, but apparently you can read them without removing them. Comics are instantly inserted or removed even though you don't need to remove them. 18 individual metal holders, waterproof, rip-proof, stain-proof, and washable self-stick contents label. It looks like a binder, kind of like what, the, what they use for, I guess they still use them for, um, keeping the game cards, the sports cards, like your Pokemon cards and things, and this seems like the same thing, except it holds comics. So that's actually kind of cool, but I prefer a box. Uh, let's see. Next ad is an is a house ad. Uh, the top half has Superman. You can find him in every issue of these comics. Look for these titles. And he appears in Superman, World's Finest, Action Comics, The Superman Family, Justice League of America, and Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes. And on the bottom half, we have Batman. And look for me... Or, I'm sorry... <clears throat> And look for me in every comic that has one of these titles on the cover. Sorry, that's the best I can do. Uh, that was Batman, World's Finest, Justice League of America, The Brave and the Bold, Batman Family, and Detective Comics. We're moving through here. We have two Saku specials for September in DC's new Super Size. The first one, the spectacular a sensational first, a spectacular Super Friends issue with exclusive cover, art, and features by the one and only Alex Toth, the talented artist who designed the show, I'm sorry, designed the top TV show. So we have the Super Friends book, which 
is kind of controversial because while everyone else can be drawn by Alex Toth, they had to cover his face with an old Kurt Swan drawing because, you know, Superman has to look just so. Uh, don't feel too bad, Alex, because, you know, Kirby had the same problem. And also, a special Dick Tracy issue. The world's number one detective tackles his most famous foe, Flat Top. Plus, a lineup of the most deadly villains ever dreamed up, with extra special features and a pinup. And it looks like on this cover we have Dick Tracy up against Brain. It's hard to read these. Uh, Flat Top, Pouch, Johnny Scorn, Brow, <laughs> who has a big brow, uh, Shaky, and I can't tell, Bribery, I think, and Prune Face. Ew, it does look pretty gross. Looks like his face is actually melting. Um, but yeah, uh, the next page is a two-page spread ad for the CBS Saturday Mornings. Your morning begins at 8 o'clock with Pebbles and Bam Bam. Uh, at 8.30, the Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner Hour. 9.30, you get Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? 10 o'clock, the Shazam Isis Hour begins with Shazam. And then, of course, at 10.30, you have Isis. 11 o'clock, you get the Far Out Space Nuts. Starring Bob Denver and Chuck McCann in person. Uh, at 11.30, you get Ghostbusters, the Hanna-Barbera Ghostbusters, not the uh, Ghostbusters that we would know and love from the movies. Um, at 12 o'clock noon, you get Valley of the Dinosaurs. At 12.30, you get Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. And at 1 o'clock, you get the CBS Children's Film Festival. Films from all over the world, especially for kids, but if your parents behave, you can let them watch, too. Thrills and chills and giggles and laughs, all right here on CBS. Now, this is pretty cool because it appears that uh, Neil Adams drew this, judging by the looks of the live-action people, which is pretty cool because he draws a pretty good Bugs Bunny, he draws a pretty good Roadrunner, he draws a pretty good Fred and Wilma, and the, of course the teenage version of Pebbles and Bam Bam. Um, Scooby and the gang look pretty good. Bill Cosby looks good, so do the Fat Albert and the Cosby kids, that's pretty neat. I just think it's cool that they went all the way to 1 o'clock. See, when, when I was little, but, well, later on, that was pretty much over by noon on the East Coast. Um, you had your cartoons up till about noon, and about noon you would either start sports stuff, like college football during the fall, or basketball during the winter, or movies after, or movies during the summer. So I think it's pretty cool that they went all the way till 1. But, yeah, so there you go. Uh, next up, we have an ad for all of the, for a bunch of the big tabloid-sized comics that they've created. The fir famous first editions of Action Comics is sold out. Famous first edition, well, I'm sorry, famous first edition of Action Comics number one is sold out. Famous first edition of Detective Comics number 27, featuring the debut of Batman, still available. As well, actually, everything else is available that I'm going to tell you about. Uh, the first tabloid with Superman, with six spectacular stories, all reprinted in a humongous size. Famous first edition of Wonder Woman number one. Famous first edition of Sensational Co of Sensation Comics number one, I guess, which is the first appearance of Wonder Woman. 
famous first edition of Wiz Comics, number whichever one has the first appearance of Shazam. Famous first edition of Flash Comics, number one. Guess who's in that one? And then, of course, other books, uh, all tabloid size. Ghosts, Tarzan, The Bible, uh, Shazam, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And Volume 2 appears to be more of a photo cover of the star of the Shazam TV series uh, as Captain Marvel himself, while the Volume 1 has more of a comic book art version. There's the Batman... Uh, uh, Secret Origin of the Supervillains and Superman Volume 2 which that's the one I own and while the cover looks really cool the stories inside well they're not bad but I don't know I just I'm not one for buying reprints So the next ad is a newspaper for comic fans are you into comic fandom? are you a serious comic collector? if you are you should be into comic fandom I'm Alan L. Light, editor of the Comic Collector's Widest Read newspaper, The Buyer's Guide for Comic Fandom. Each issue is currently read by over 8,000 comic fans. The Buyer's Guide is a newspaper-sized publication exclusively for comic book fans and collectors. It is published every two weeks, 24 times a year, which means he misses one, so it's not every two weeks, unless back then they didn't have as many weeks in a year. Um, an And an average issue is over 80 pages big. Each issue features hundreds of ads from collectors who have comics to sell or trade, as well as ads for comic strips, pulps, fanzines, conventions, old radio shows, reprint books, etc. Everything that has anything to do with the comic art world will be found in the Buyer's Guide. Plus, aside from ads, we have regular columns, news features, poster-sized covers, contests, photo reports on comic conventions, interviews, and much more. A full-year subscription to the Buyer's Guide is only $5 American. Thanks to the many pages of advertising we publish, we can offer you our magazine at about half our cost. You'll get each 80-page issue for under 21 cents, less than a comic book itself costs today. Well, by 1975. I hope you'll decide to subscribe right away and join the more than 8,000 comic fans and collectors who already read the Buyer's Guide every two weeks. Like I said, a full 24-issue year is just $5. And that's through Dynapubs in East Moline, Illinois. So that's pretty cool. In fact, the cover shows a uh, Jack Kirby cover. It looks like Mr. Miracle. It's hard to tell because it's not very good scan because it's small and it's 1975 and it's not colored, but it looks to me like Mr. Miracle. I can't tell. It could be marvelous, though. Then the next page we have, or the next ad page, we have one of those crazy um, just cram as many ads as you can into one page. There's the three-dimensional hypno coin, which I don't have a sound effect for. Dang it. Um, let's see. There's uh, you know karate lessons. Free one million dollars in cash. Fool your friends. Comic book ad of. Evil Knievel coins. Um, get lift pads for your shoes so you can be taller instantly. So, yeah. And let's see, is that it? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, then uh, an ad we've seen before. Uh, top half is three big drafting kits given to you. And the bottom half is how to learn to be a motorcycle mechanic. 
the next is a full-page ad. Uh, we're off to see the wizard in the most magical, most magnificent, most merriest comics masterpiece of all time. Marvel Comics, DC Comics, and Metro-Golden-Mare proudly present the wonderful, the marvelous Wizard of Oz. For the first time in comics history, Marvel and DC in a joint publishing venture. Every page is supersized and in full color. With sensational special features as L. Frank Baum, The American Grimm, Who's Who in MGM's Oz, and more photos than you can throw a munchkin at, not to mention a marvelous map of Oz. So you can order that for just two bucks. And I can't tell who's doing the art. Uh, maybe I can. That definitely looks like all, uh, olive oil. Whoa. Dorothy definitely looks like a John Romita Jr. Dorothy. But it's supposed to be photo ref. You know, look, everyone else looks just like the movie, so it's hard to tell. And that's funny. This ad says that you enclose two dollars. Oh, that includes posters and handling. Because I'm looking at the cover to this, and it's a buck fifty. So, but yes, this was before. This was their first joint venture, bef even before the Superman Spider-Man team up. Uh, Wizard of Oz. So that's pretty cool. I haven't read it, never saw it actually, but yeah. Uh, next, uh, the next ad is for the LaSalle Extension University. Because you know, that way you can be smiling now. The inside back cover is prizes or cash for, you know, selling stuff from the Junior Sales Club of America. Um, anything from a wristwatch. I'm sorry, a girl's tinkle time, twinkle time wristwatch to a multiband portable radio and an air hockey game. And the back cover is model building fun from Monogram. Now you can build a car and a bottle in just minutes with quote-unquote pop art. And they actually show um, the those funny cars with the long noses and the big tires in the back. And this shows them in a Pepsi bottle and a 7-Up bottle. So I'm guessing, well, they've at least got deals with 7-Up and Pepsi. So that's pretty cool. And that's just about it for the ads. Now, I'm going to ask you to bear with me. One of the things that I've been trying to do is, and that I've been asked, asked to do once I get to them, which I have on a couple of occasions, um, the Hostess Twinkie ads. Now, um, normally, and I got permission from the guys, but normally I would use a Michael Bailey Scott Garner production of a Hostess Twinkie ad uh, here, except for the fact that this is one that they didn't actually do. So, you're going to have to bear with me. <clears throat> but this is Shazam! The World's Mightiest Mortal Fights, the Minerva Menace. Aunt Minerva, leading lady of the underworld, hatches a plot to dominate the world of the future. If the future of the world rests with the children, I'll control the children. Great idea, but how? Shut up and listen. I'll use my mind-controlled machine to confuse their minds. We'll capture the TV station and broadcast controlled thoughts. I'll convince them that what they like, they really don't like. Brilliant thinking, Aunt Minerva. Aunt Minerva's henchmen capture Billy Batson. 
Minerva quickly begins Operation Big Lie. You don't like Hostess Twinkies. You don't like Hostess Twinkies. And then, of course, on the next panel, the kids are like, I don't like Hostess Twinkies. I don't like Hostess Twinkies. Meanwhile, I've got to decontrol the children's minds and let them say what they really mean. Shazam! With the sound of the magic word, Mystic Lightning strikes again. Think for yourself, kids. What am I saying? I love Hostess Twinkies. Golden sponge cake with creamy filling inside. What could be more delicious than Twinkies? The world's mightiest mortal has beaten me again. You should have brainwashed the kids about something other than Twinkies. Yeah, Aunt Minerva, kids like Twinkies too much to be fooled. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies. Sorry to put you through that, kids, but there you go. A Hostess Twinkie ad by one person. Next up is our backup feature, Superboy in the Bronze Age. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Hello, this is J. David Weeder with Superboy the Bronze Age looking at the adventures of the boy and or teen of Steel in this era. For the last several episodes, we have been looking at the DC All-New Collector's Edition C-55 featuring Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. The story began with Superboy arriving at a 30th century changed by the disbanding of the UN and the marriage of Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl, who were kidnapped right after the wedding. The Legionnaires split up into two groups, a rescue mission for the newlyweds, and a group who returned to the 20th century to investigate the change in time. While the rescue was successful, the time-traveling Legionnaires met with defeat at the hands of the Time Trapper, save Superboy who was made to stay behind in a time bubble. And that is where we pick up with our final installment, Showdown at the End of Eternity, written by Paul Levitz, penciled by Mike Grell, inked by Vince Coletta, colored by Jerry Serpe, with letters by Gaspar Saladino. And both teams of Legionnaires return to 2978 simultaneously, and it takes seconds for Superboy and Wildfire to be at each other's throats. A meeting is called with all of the Legion in attendance to debate what is happening, and Saturn Girl uses her telepathy, combined with Dream Girl's prophetic powers, to pinpoint the Time Trapper's location at the end of time. So the Legion beams to the end of time, which looks like a nuclear holocaust decimated it, except for the Time Trapper's Citadel. Phantom Girl is the first to enter the Citadel by phasing through the wall, while Element Lad tries to transmute the wall's elements, but gets overpowered, but not before banking a hole big enough for Shrinking Violet to pass through. But, when the screams of Shrinking Violet and the Phantom Girl call out through the tiny opening, the Legion blasts through the wall and begins to battle the Time Trapper, who is holding the two girls hostage in a stasis beam. The Time Trapper uses the hostages as leverage to capture the Legion, and then he reveals himself to be a controller a benevolent race of beings from another dimension, beings that have tried to eradicate war in our dimension peacefully. But this controller went bad and uses a miracle machine, which is a controller-built device that converts thought to reality to permanently destroy the universe's time flux. But not before sending killer thought energy towards the Legion. Superboy rallies the Legionnaires to concentrate on the machine, and with that force of mind, they go mind-to-mind with the Time Trapper, reversing the energy back at him which sends the Time Trapper back to his dimension, 
and the Legion back to their corrected time and home. In the end, Wildfire apologizes to Superboy as Saturn Girl and Lightning Lad finally go on their honeymoon. All is well, and long live the Legion. Now, the story itself kind of falls flat with this chapter, to be honest. It looks great. Grell is an awesome artist, and I love his style. Um, we get another two-page splash on pages 48 and 49, this time of the two sets of Legion teams returning, once again kind of giving us that widescreen feel that I like so much about the Treasury editions. And speaking of widescreen, the book has this massive wraparound cover of the Legion fighting Khan's army from uh, last episode or episode before last. It's pretty epic, except, of course, it doesn't really happen in the book itself, but I'm good with good art. There's a great panel on page 50 of Superboy grimly reflected in Wildfire's visor, and on page 52, we get a full-on Legion meeting at the U-shaped table, which is a great device to show a lot of Legionnaires at once. It's very George Perez. Uh, page 54 has a cool splash of the Legion arriving at the desolate end of time. It's very cosmic, very bleak, kind of honestly reminds me a little bit of Scooby-Doo a bit, you know, when they would walk through the swamp, but it's the exact mood needed here, so good on you, Mike Grell. And on page 55, Shrinking Violet enters the Time Trapper Citadel, and Element Lad is taken out. Now, this is actually a very subtle, but very effective, good way to have characters appear for some face time. But, let's remove them from the story so we kind of manage the pieces on the chessboard, so to speak. So, not something we see sparingly in Legion stories with a great number of characters running around. On page 56, we get this awesome splash in the top panel of the Legion flying as they burst into the wall of the Time Trapper's Fortress, which is pure pinup. I mean, this could be a blog header. And the fight between the Legion and the Time Trapper, it's a bit too brief for the build-up we've gotten. A lot of this chapter is dedicated to the exposition of the Time Trapper's origin, but to be fair, it's a relevant thing. The Time Trapper's been a long-standing Legion villain at this point, whose identity has remained secret, so this is like a Norman Osborn-level reveal. It's relevant. Kind of an event in itself. And while I like the eventual defeat of the Time Trapper by way of the Legion banding together to concentrate the energies back on him, I could have stood for more fisticuffs, because I didn't feel that the Time Trapper was presented as as serious a threat as he should be, and the boom sort of dropped off right at the climax. Uh, but the ride was generally pretty fun up to this point, and I'd, if, if you manage to get your hands on this Treasury Edition, it still has some really standout moments, some really great Mike Grell art, so uh, I would actually give this a light recommendation if you find it. It's a good price. Go for it. But that ends our multi-part look at the all-new Treasury Edition C55. Next time, it's back to randomly selected standalone Superboy stories. Until then, I'm J. David Weeder. Long live the Legion. Long live Superboy. All right. Thanks, David. And that's going to wrap things up for this episode and for birthday month. Join us again in just two weeks for the first part of Imaginary Story Month, where we look at Superman 300 and see what the world would be like in that far-off future of 2001 if Superman landed on Earth in 1976. Plus, David showcases another adventure of Superboy in the Bronze Age. We'll see you then. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. 
You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. Superman of the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.